Lately, I have been feeling, I'm gonna share this and it's, um, I hope it's not too much. I, I've been feeling a little bit uh, discouraged in life and I know it's not great to overshare in a message, it's not really necessary, but um, I don't think I'm gonna overshare, but I think some vulnerability is okay and maybe should be, should happen more often when people speak, I, I don't know. But lately I have been feeling a little bit uh, discouraged and I, I kind of feel like I've been working harder than ever. Like I've worked harder than I've ever worked. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing. I feel kind of on top of things for the very first time in my life. And yet the more that I find to do, the more scrutiny I come under and the more criticism I face and that I am not built to take it. I am, I'm just not, I'm horrible at it. But this is kind of um, what I've been going through lately. You know, Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But I'm the kind of person that kind of finds myself with less might to do the things my hand finds to do because I find myself under more scrutiny and a little bit more criticism. And it's a little bit exhausting trying to keep up with this, especially when I feel like everything I put my hand to kind of crumbles a little bit. Um, just as one example, this just happened last night, actually. Um, I was on my way home from uh, Cincinnati and I got some bad news. Like, so I recently just finished my bachelor's degree, finally, which was a huge weight lifted off. And it was nice because I found a direction that I really love and I was poised to start my master's degree, which I was really, really excited about. I found out a few weeks ago that I had some really bad advising uh, information. And so now it turns out I couldn't just jump into the master's degree. I have to wait to apply until August. So I find myself with all this like dead time basically and I'm trying to think, okay, how do I redeem this time? How do I make use of this time? So I prayed about it. I asked people that I was close to about it and uh, the conclusion I came to was that I was going to apply for a shorter master's degree, just something that I'm interested in um, so that I could still keep my mind active, still be used to staying in classes and not uh, kind of fall off the sticking with school, you know, and, and that is really a danger, I think. I mean, I've done it before and it was hard to go back. So I was hoping to apply to this other program. It was actually a master's of apologetics, which would have been so cool. I would have loved it. Um, but just last night after an interview uh, with their school board, they called me, had this long conversation and I thought it went really well, but I was told that I wasn't accepted into the program because I don't affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. So that was kind of a blow to my morale because I thought, man, I've really had great interactions with the school for a long time. Um, I have interacted with people that don't believe like I do without contention and they've heard my point and it's been respectful and I thought there would be no issue going forward, but apparently they, they couldn't see past that. So everything will work out. Everything happens for, you know, I think, I think God's in control. I don't know if everything happens for a reason, meaning I don't think he directs every single thing that happens, but I think he can make all things work for good. So I'm not terribly worried about it, um, but it was a little disheartening. It was a little bit discouraging. And that's just like the last thing that has happened. That's the most recent thing. But it feels like things like this have continued to happen um, over the past few months. And it's just, it's really tiring. And so it's honestly, to be really vulnerable, it has had me questioning why I do certain things. Um, and here's my reasoning that, that causes me to doubt so much. I, I think like this. 
If God is for it, no one can prevail against it, right? That, Gamaliel said that. It seems to be a truth. Um, it being whatever activity um, I put my mind to. Then, after that, I find that people are prevailing against me, right? At least more, like, in my morale. That's what it feels like. And then, therefore, the conclusion of that is God no, must not be for it. And if he's not for it, meaning all the things I put my hands to, maybe he's not for me. And if he's not for it, shouldn't I just quit? Why fight against the will of God? How much do you fight before it's like, okay, well, God's not, you know, he's not directing this path, so stop fighting it. These are the questions that, that race through my head. I, I keep thinking, if I were doing something good and right, wouldn't it succeed? Wouldn't I be more accomplished? Wouldn't I be less critiqued? Wouldn't I be more supported? Now, you all probably already see the flaws in my reasoning. I'm sure you do. Um, and that's okay. I see them as well. I can logically look and see that I'm not thinking very clearly on some of this stuff, but it can be really hard to get my brain and my heart to kind of be focused in the same direction. Um, so that's a little bit what we're going to be studying into today because I realized that I was doing this type of um, Jeremiah 12 thinking is what I like to call it because in, in Jeremiah 12, you'll recall Jeremiah, he's a prophet to Judah and he prophesied during the time just before, during, and just after Judah was attacked by Babylon. So there's this, this prophet and he loves his people even though they kind of hate him for the things he prophesies, but he loves his nation and he loves his people and he prophesies them trying to get them to repent, to turn back to God. But, of course, they're not thinking clearly. They, they don't do this. And so he is often labeled the weeping prophet because just things don't seem to go his way very often. So he sees his nation that he loves being attacked by this evil, horrible people. And not only that, but God tells him that this evil, horrible people are tools in his hand. So suddenly, God's people are the ones under punishment, while evil evil people that are not even remotely God's people are instruments for him to use. And I could imagine this would be tough for Jeremiah to comprehend. Now on top of this, his own people, who he tries to defend to God, who he loves even though they hate him, just despise him. They do not give him the time of day. They shout him down. They imprison him. They are sick of Jeremiah. And so he feels like, as a decent person himself, why is he undergoing, you know, this, this poor treatment from this nation that he loves so much? And so he writes this in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. I saw some of you turning there. You don't have to turn there. Um, we'll be going through several verses today, so I, I didn't expect you to. But some people, if you're already there, it's okay. Jeremiah 12, verse 1 says this. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet... Oh, that's a really important word. Righteous are you, Lord... But one thing, let me talk with you about your judgments. So Jeremiah has questions for God about his judgments. Why is this stuff happening? I know you're good. In my brain, I know that. But I'm having trouble seeing it right now. So this is what Jeremiah is saying. And he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? This is his question. And I could imagine this. I didn't go through, I've, I've never been through half of what Jeremiah's been through. And I have that same question too. 
So, of course, he would have that question. You might remember that Asaph had the same question in Psalm 73, and he even added to this by saying things like, I'm just going to summarize here um, and skip around that psalm, but he says things like, there are no pangs in their death. They have more than their hearts could wish. They set their mouth against the heavens. Behold, these are the ungodly, those who are always at ease. So he looks and he sees the righteous, or the righteous suffer while the ungodly prosper, or the wicked prosper. So this is two different inspired scripture writers taking issue with God over this matter of the wicked prospering, over God's judgment of a situation. And as I study this, I find it very relatable, but also slightly separate from my own situation, right? I'm not living exactly like they're living. I'm not even seeing the wicked prosper necessarily. Um, I'm just seeing my own life and wondering why things aren't going as well as I would like, you know? So while I often do see those who I would claim are, are wicked prospering, I, it's more often me falling prey to comparison, which I think is a huge enemy um, that people face on a regular basis. Um, so it's a little bit different of a situation than they're going through. But what's going on in my head? And I think the answer lies with what Jeremiah said in verse 1. God, I know you're good, but... I've got a bone to pick with you regarding your judgments. Often I feel frustrated enough sometimes to ask, why do the wicked prosper? But really what I want to know is, why do the righteous suffer? That's what I want to know. I don't, okay, wicked have their things going on. I want to know about me right now. Now, obviously, again, this is flawed reasoning, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But I notice that there's kind of these four divisions of this of what way reality can take that two of them make sense to us and two of them are very confusing. So the wicked suffer, this makes sense. The righteous prosper, this makes sense. But the wicked prosper, this is confusing. And the righteous suffer, this is confusing. So there's these four divisions and I think they all share the same root problem that I'll be spending the rest of our time on today. I think they act under the assumption that God has set up a system in this world where behavior and circumstances are directly correlated under a cause and effect relationship so that every behavior on a one-to-one ratio results in a comparative circumstance. I think that is what we're thinking and feeling when we struggle with those two confusing divisions and fully comprehend the two that make sense to us. So today I want to go through how I've struggled with this, how Ancient Israel has struggled with this, give an Old Testament example, then go through a New Testament example to show that this is a very human problem. This has happened all throughout history. It's going to continue happening, but it's something that we have to wrestle with. And then I'd like to offer some, I don't know if I would call them solutions. I'd like to offer some encouragement or some help, things that I found helpful when struggling with this concept. So in the book of Galatians, if you'd like to turn there, Galatians 5, Paul writes down a list of actions condemned by God that a Christian should refrain from. And then immediately following this huge list of negative actions, which are living according to the flesh, he writes down this list that we know as the fruit of the Spirit. So he says this in Galatians 5, verse 22. I'm just going to read 22 and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, interestingly, this is kind of an aside point. Many commentaries, I didn't realize this before, point to this verse and where it says, against such, um, I've always taken this list to be, that's the complete list. If I'm growing in all those things and I'm doing all the things I need to be doing and I have it made. But most people actually read this and realize that the, the phrase against such is kind of like against such things as this. So a number of things could follow this list. It doesn't have to just be limited to this group. There could be other things or subpoints to these that you also need to be growing in or also want to look for when doing some self-examination. So uh, it's not necessarily an exhausted list that Paul writes down here. It's against this type of thing, there is no law. But this verse has always frustrated me a bit because of this last verse, against such there is no law. Because without an understanding of the context of this verse, I have inadvertently maintained a belief that God was expressing that his commands for us to embody, that these traits are not condemned anywhere. And I don't see that. I don't see that happening. So I I think he, he seems to be saying, not in his law or the law of man, in no law are these things condemned. And I think that this belief stems from the same problem as I mentioned before. We believe almost instinctually that good behavior leads to good circumstances. So everywhere in the world, if you do these things, it's going to be appreciated. It's going to be good. There's no, there's no law against these things. But the problem is I can't maintain that belief because of the evidence that I see around me. Um, when it comes to man's law being compatible with God's law, it just, it almost never lines up that way. Now, we've been blessed in this country, founded on Judeo-Christian values, that we still hold on to kind of a remnant of virtue. But even that, it seems like we're losing more and more. Um, For example, to teach a person God's commands unflinchingly, but then gently lead them to a path towards God, that is one of the most loving things you can do for a person. And yet, in this world, that might be considered hate speech or intolerance. Or maybe you could be patiently waiting on God's timing for something, praying and waiting and trying to make a good decision with God's guidance. And this is a really good quality But in the world, you're not trusting your gut. You're not moving efficiently. You're not being fast acting. And that could just be seen as stupid or ignorant. And so while there's no written civic law against these things, there is a trending direction, and I would say maybe a sociological law, that does seem to go against these that can actually be just as damaging as any civic law might be. So in context with this verse, it's really important to point out that Paul's discussion here is about living according to the flesh or according to the spirit um, in tandem with living under the penalty of the law and then living under grace through Christ. So essentially what he's saying here, if I could just sum up this whole section, is that though we aren't under the penalty of the law anymore, there is still an expectation for us to refrain from evil and seek out godly traits. Um, it's not motivated out of an effort to save ourselves, right? We're not, we're not striving to keep the law so that um, we can maybe save ourselves or attain salvation for ourselves. We're doing it out of, our motivation now is love of God, love of Jesus Christ and what he did for us and trying to transform our lives into him. 
and to what he is um, because that's what he asks of us. And so out of love, we obey his commands. But for those who Paul is talking to in the book of Galatians, they're still trying to find their life and their salvation by keeping the law, evidenced by circumcision, which is the main topic uh, in, in this section. But Paul is attempting to show the purpose of the law in the first place. So when he says, see, when he says that there's nothing, against the, uh, nothing in the law against these fruits, uh, he's actually claiming that the law affirms this transformed life, these things that you were supposed to become. The law that they're looking at to save themselves, Paul says the purpose of it is here. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience. I mean, he lists this whole fruit of the Spirit to show that this is what the law intended for you all along. So it's not that the law is evil. Some people take that from here. They try and juxtapose law with grace or law with love. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. We still have a a command to walk forward into right living. But we have to understand that the purpose of that law was for these things, so that we can gain these things, love, joy, peace. It was to point us to Christ so we can have him in our lives and transform ourselves into his image. Uh, it reminds me in Israel, right? They, God says to them, I think maybe two, at least two times, maybe three times, he says that he desires um, mercy and not sacrifice. Or that they were keeping these days, but they were doing it vainly. They, they didn't have the meaning of what they were doing anymore, and so they became an abomination to him. So sacrifice was given to Israel, and it was designed to show mercy. That was the point of sacrifice, so that they could come to God and thank him for what he did, or repent of what they did and ask forgiveness. This is what sacrifice was, but they were just sacrificing without mercy anymore. They didn't show mercy to others. They weren't seeking mercy after themselves. They didn't care what they did. They had no morality they were seeking after. And so this, this doesn't mean that no bad things can happen to you by following God. It can. It absolutely does not mean this because bad things can happen to you all the time by following God's way. So that's not what Paul is saying here when he says, against such there is no law. So this is how I've struggled with this. This is a way in which I've looked at the verses and thought, I'm really trying to do these things. You say there's no law against these. Granted, I took the verse out of context and believed that it meant every law known to man, and that's just not true. But I really felt like trying to do God's way often leads to penalty and pain and suffering. Um, I've even come to the conclusion that, or the, the realization and the understanding that, obviously, Christ did not promise us an easy, free-of-struggle life. But sometimes it is directly correlated between the good thing you do in following God's way that actually causes the pain, right? And those are the moments where I'm up against it, where I think, man, if this was of God, why would it hurt me so much? This is, this is how I've struggled. Um, let's turn to ancient Israel now. If you would turn to Exodus 24, because I think they went through the exact same thing. And granted, Israel is not always the greatest example to live up to, but remember, in this section, I'm not trying to prove that we should have this frame of mind, um, or that this is something that is good to struggle with, or good to feel. It's just that we do struggle with it. So let's be honest about that, and then learn from the examples of the Bible. And I think Israel is one of the prime examples we can learn from, because if we're supposed to be Israel now, God's people, then what better way to learn than from the experiment that didn't work out so well, right? Or it did work out, but just in a different way than the people thought it would. So in Exodus 24, um, I want to give Israel a little bit of credit here, because 
it would be really hard, even though they were enslaved in Egypt, it would be really hard to uproot your life and move to somewhere different. And not only somewhere different, but a place that you don't know where you're going. The wilderness, right? I mean, that's where they said they're going. We're going into the wilderness to worship God. If you told me that, I would say, yeah, like for a weekend trip, right? And be like, no, we're, this is where we're going. And so I think that took a, a measure of faith. Even to have Moses go on their behalf to Pharaoh and petition for them, I think would have taken a measure of faith. Now, they couldn't have stopped it because God commanded it and it was going to happen. But when Moses went and Pharaoh denied it, he upped their labor. He made it harder for them. And he was in such power that he could have easily just said, they're not worth the trouble, kill them. He did that with the firstborn males, right? Why not just the rest of the people? These guys are grumbling too much, too much complaining. I don't know who this Moses guy thinks he is, but I'm not going to deal with it. Wipe them out. He could have done that. And so for Israel to have allowed that to happen and not put up any fight about it and then to leave their home and after going through the plagues, I think this takes a measure of faith that we should recognize um, because if we don't pro appropriately esteem them, I think we make them out to be some sort of enemy. But then when we compare ourselves to them and realize we do the same thing, it can be not the best experience. So I think uh, knowing and giving them credit for what they did do is important. Um, okay, so then in Exodus 24, this is when they've gone to the wilderness, they've gone into Sinai, they've traveled, traveled there and um, God has spoken his covenant to Moses and he's handed it to the people. And it says this in uh, 24 verses 3, and I'm going to read through verse 8. So Exodus 24 verse 3 through 8 says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words." Now, of course, we know how the story goes. They did not follow their end of the bargain. They did not keep this covenant perfectly. Um, I certainly don't keep my covenant with God perfectly. But they didn't keep it perfectly. They sinned. But God set up a system where he knew they would do that, and he could still bear with them. He didn't have to strike them dead as soon as they had sinned. God was patient. He gave grace to the people, um, knowing that they would sin. And so still, even though they sinned, even though they fell short of their covenant, they were still in covenant. God considered them to be his covenant people, even when they broke it because he made ways to repair that. And so if you even think about it, their first rebellion, the golden calf, it came on the heels of not knowing what happened to Moses and not hearing from God. So imagine God makes a covenant with his people and he says, if you obey me, I will be your God. I will be with you. I will guide you. You know, these are things that they expected from God. Now, God doesn't always work the way we think he should or expect that he will. But he made this covenant and then kind of was silent for a while and took their leader away. And suddenly, maybe in their mind, 
with false understanding, it seems as if God didn't uphold his end of the bargain. Where's he at? He's supposed to be here. Where's Moses? He's supposed to talk with him for us. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Now, this doesn't excuse their action. They fell immediately into paganism. This was not the right move. But understanding from their perspective why they did what they did, it, it, doesn't, it makes it seem more understandable than just saying, oh, they were stupid and they just you know, immediately sinned. It's like, that's true, but so are we. And they had human reasoning that led them to that point. So I think it's natural that Israel at this time would have asked after this had all happened. Remember, this had happened, then they were punished for their sin. Then they're led into the wilderness and they're starving. They're thirsty. They are probably losing people along the way. And they keep on wandering, not knowing where they're supposed to be going. I could imagine they would think, what gives? God is not upholding his end of this bargain here. And so it makes sense that they would ask, just like I do in my times of weakness, why do the righteous suffer? Israel might have asked this question. We would never look at Israel as righteous, but they might have asked this question. It's natural that they would want to say to God, just like Jeremiah did, you've been righteous, yet let me ask of your judgments. This makes sense to me. Now let's turn to the New Testament and see how these people struggle with it. Um, if you would go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I have written here. I'm not going to do it, but this is what I have written down. I wrote whole chapter, skip around verses, illuminate the necessary parts. So that's what we're going to do, but we're not going to read the whole thing. So it says this in John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when he said these things, he spat into the ground. I'm not reading at this point. I'm just summarizing. Made some mud clay with his fingers, anointed the man's eyes. And then he wasn't even healed right away. He said, go and wash. And as he washed, he found his sight coming back. But what happens is, is really, really interesting because the Pharisees found out about this and they were not happy. So they go and question his parents, this blind man's parents, and they say, um, was this man really blind from birth? What happened? They're trying to ascertain if a miracle had actually happened because they're really looking for ways to label Jesus Christ a sinner um, or a blasphemer. They were really bent on that. So then they, eventually they go to the man himself who is healed and they say, well, that man who healed you was a sinner. He breaks the Sabbath, so he is not a man of God. And this is his answer in verse 25. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I don't know if he was just being cheeky at that moment, or if he was um, earnest and hoping that they might become his disciples. I'm not sure what he thought, but I always find that really, really funny. Verse 28, they give their answer. Then they reviled him 
And they said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. This is such an interesting phrase and plays right into what I'm talking about today. We're going to come back to that line. So just remember that where he says, God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Um, Then they said, then they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Uh, then Jesus comes back into the story and, and asks the man if he believes that he is in the Son of God, reveals himself as the Son of God, and this man worships Christ. But the Pharisees come back in, and it says this in verse 40, When some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains." Because uh, this is in response. Sorry, I probably should have read that part. Um, He says in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. So the Pharisees then ask, Am I blind? Are we blind? Is that what you're saying to us? And he said, basically, no, you see, you're just wrong. Which, man, what what a powerful statement to make to Pharisees who in some ways on the human level had control to take him out, which is what they did in the end. So to me, this is a really interesting section because Christ points out that it was not because of sin that this man was made blind. That's the first really important point. And then the man points out that God does not hear sinners. And this is really confusing to me because was the man himself not a sinner? Was he perfect all of his life? Probably not. I'm sure he sinned at some point. Um, also, did he never pray to be made well? I'm sure he prayed to be made well. You know, why wouldn't you? He believed God was a worker of miracles. So he believes that God has, can hear him. He believes that God can heal. And yet he says sinners are not heard. And he's a sinner. So that's really interesting. But then Christ ends by claiming that he's come to bless those who are spiritually infirm. Or those who are blind. And then judge harshly those who believe themselves to be spiritually well. Or those who can see. So the sinner will prosper and the righteous will suffer. This is what Christ is saying here. And this is the exact thing that absolutely baffles my mind and I cannot make sense of. This is the same situation that I struggle with, that I'm sure you've struggled with before, that the Old Testament figures struggled with, that the disciples here seem to struggle with in asking him the question, who sinned? And yet, when I read these stories, it makes sense to us inherently that well of course he didn't he wasn't sinning that's not why he was made blind that's not how God works and yet in our lives we don't see that lesson so clearly so I think the reason is and I could I could be wrong but for me at least the reason is that I see the end result Right? I know what God was doing in that story with ancient Israel. I know what he was leading them to. I know that he was good all along in the beginning, middle, and end. So their struggle is a blink in time for me, but to them it was years of their life. To them, I don't know that I would have had the strength to not complain if I were in ancient Israel. We look at this man who's born blind and we say, of course he didn't sin from birth. 
And yet we would look, if we were born blind, and say, man, this, this is just so unfortunate. Why, why do I live like this? Why did God do this to me? Why me? Because we're living our whole lives. We get to experience this every day. And so when we read it in hindsight, it makes a lot more sense than it does in our own lives. So let's distill all this information. Let's ask God about his judgments. Because if God does promise blessings for obedience, which he does, if he claims to hate sin and condemn it, which he does, and yet all four of the divisions we talked about earlier, the righteous and and wicked both suffer, and the righteous and wicked both prosper, if these can be found in scripture and happen all the time in our day-to-day lives, what are we to make of this? Because they seem like contradictory things. What are we supposed to do? I believe this is where I get into the, the helpful portion of the message, at least the part that helps me. I believe there's three reasons that the Bible outlines as to why this occurs. And then I think there's also three things that we need to remember when questioning God's judgments or what he allows to happen. The three reasons are this. Uh, Again, these are reasons why sometimes the wicked prosper and sometimes the righteous suffer. It's to be taught lessons, to glorify God, and to be brought repentance. For both the wicked and the righteous in their respective situations, these three things are always true. And we're going to go over some of these. And then the three things we need to remember are these. We are not righteous, no matter how much we feel we might be. We are not righteous. The wicked still have hope, and God's ways are not our ways. If we remember these things, we're going to actually be going over uh, more so the things that we need to remember, because I think they illustrate um, the reasons. And I think you'll see what I mean in just a second. Um, as hard as it is to reconcile in our minds, we really should be glad, this is going to sound so contrary to what I've been talking about this whole time, what I often feel and what you might often feel, we should actually be glad that there are times that the wicked prosper and that the righteous suffer. That should be a thing that we can be glad at, and I hope to share that with you. So we're going to go through these three things that we need to remember and hopefully illustrate the three reasons. So the first one, if you remember, is we are not righteous. This is a statement of fact. This is not my opinion on all of you or my opinion on myself. It's just a statement of fact. We see this, uh, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul uh, says, there's none righteous, no, not one, drawing from the Psalms. And then in Isaiah 64, verse 6, um, he says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. So the minute we think of ourselves as righteous, the, the thing this is a, is a problem for is that the minute we feel that we are righteous, it's the minute we feel entitled to better and greater treatment. That's what happens. We begin to feel entitled. And this isn't to say that we haven't tried to be good people. I, I have, and I think you have. There's good people all throughout history who have tried to be good people, and it's not to say that everything that, bad, that is bad that happens in your life is a, is a penalty for sin. Christ points that out very, very clearly in the section with a blind, man blind, oh man, can't talk. Christ points that out very clearly in the section on the man who was born blind. This also isn't to say that there are no benefits for obeying God. There should be benefits for obeying God. Remember, those four divisions, all of them are true at different times. The righteous can prosper, the righteous can suffer. The wicked can prosper. The wicked can suffer. 
But the problem is how we think of those benefits, what they look like to us or what we expect. Our expectation often hinders our realization of the results, I guess. So what I mean is this, when we obey him, we should expect a level of blessing. There is a blessing inherently built into following God's commands. But we need to not overestimate what that needs to be. The example I'd like to give you is like putting gasoline in a car. This is what it is to be keeping God's law. This is us functioning as we are supposed to function. This is what we were made to do was be obedient and subservient to God. If I put gasoline in my car, I shouldn't expect then that my car can fly because I was told that putting gasoline in your car was a good thing. But that's often what we do with God's law. I'm keeping your law. Why aren't I wealthy? It's like, well, that's not what I promised you. I promised you'd be functioning at the level you're supposed to be functioning at. But really, we just lack, and so we feel like we should uh, deserve more. On the other hand, though, if we see a person putting old, nasty gasoline in their car, and their car turns over, we would say, well, why am I going to the pump and paying like $3.50 a gallon when they just had that sitting in their garage for 10 years, and it works? Because we don't see the end result of that car breaking down over time if they continue to follow that path. This is what following God's law is. It is an absolute uh, blessing to be functioning at capacity. I would love to be functioning at capacity, but the way that you do that is by keeping God's law. That in itself is a blessing, but we don't often have that perspective. We want our cars to fly. We want something more than has even been promised from keeping his law. So we are not righteous, but it does not mean that we're not striving towards righteousness. It does not mean that there's no blessings for keeping God's law. And this perspective of our own goodness can be helpful in realizing that we are not actually owed anything. Nothing. We're only deserving of death. And anything beyond, anything before that, anything short of death is mercy. Because it means we still have a chance at improvement. It doesn't always feel like mercy. It really doesn't. But it is mercy because what we deserve is death. Eternal death. That's what we deserve. But the thing is, even living optimally, even keeping God's law as well as we can, even putting gasoline in your car, does not mean your car doesn't break down over time. It's not meant to last forever. We're not either. We're going to break down. We're going to have problems. We're going to have issues, especially when you got weird drivers on the road doing weird stuff. They might crash into you, and that's not your fault at all. It's theirs, but it can still happen to you. So that's the first point. We are not righteous. The second point, and I think this to me is one of the most important, is that the wicked still have hope. And this should be particularly meaningful to us because as we illustrated in the first point, we are the wicked. In so many ways, we are the wicked, but we still have hope. Now, we would always prefer blessings over harmful things or painful things when we mess up. I mean, no one is, is out there hoping and praying that we go through trials. But we know it's going to happen, so we deal with them as they come. But I would always rather a good thing, even though I do a bad thing, even though that's not the best thing for me. The best thing is correction, and that can be painful. It's amazing to me that God will meet someone where they are, especially when it's me, but he'll meet them where they are and then call them out of it call them to something better. 
And we should want that for people. But sometimes we don't when we hate that the wicked experience blessings. Of course, if the people stay on the path that they're on, if they stay wicked and they continue being wicked, surely this is going to lead to destruction. There's no question about that. The Bible speaks to that very, very clearly. But in the meantime, what are we most concerned about? When we consider these issues, shouldn't we be hoping for the good of other people? I think we should. But often we don't. We should hope that God blesses other people to show them his goodness, even if they're wicked, because I am also wicked. The best example that I've found about this, and this is actually uh, the thing that got me started along this path for this message, is from the life of Solomon. Um, we know Solomon. We know that at the beginning of his life, he, he did a good job. He was a good king. We consider him to be a good king. The son of David um, represents Christ in a lot of aspects of his life. Uh, wasn't perfect, obviously, but really did a, a great job starting out. And then, over time, we know that he slipped, he fell, he sinned, he got worse and worse. And we don't, we don't know about the ending of Solomon's life necessarily. People have different opinions on that. But he did, in the beginning, seek God, and he wanted to be good. If you would turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to look at this story. And I think it's a common story, but this is something I hadn't noticed about it before when I read through it this time. 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to see some not so good things about Solomon at the beginning of his life. Even though our overall impression of him is positive, we're going to see some things that might be surprising. I've read over them before, certainly. 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Strike one. You, that's not good. You don't do that. You don't make treaties with foreign nations. God compares that to adultery several times throughout the judges, throughout the kings, um, and throughout the prophets. You don't make treaties with foreign nations. You do not put your, your trust or your strength in the, the might of other people. Then it says, and he married Pharaoh's daughter. Strike two. That is not good. You do not marry into a family where the person is believing in foreign gods that could lead you astray. And we see that that did happen with Solomon in his life. It says this, Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, in verse 2, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Strike three. This is not the best example of a human being. I don't want to follow these things. These are things I should be taught away from. And yet, here it is, Solomon, good king, starting out his life. And it says some good things about him. He loved the Lord. That's great. He walked in the statues of his father David. Great. But he burnt incense at the high places. Now, these high places are literally pagan altars. These are built up to foreign gods, but it's a place to worship. And so Solomon goes, doing his best. And it says here in verse 4, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what shall I give you? 
So Solomon, even at the beginning of his kingship, in a lot of ways, was acting wickedly. He might have been doing the best he could, but it still was not according to the law of God. It was still contrary to what God wanted. So imagine a faithful Jew at this time seeing their king go up to a high place, dedicated to a foreign god, sacrifice to God, and then be visited by that God that you, on the other hand, have worshipped faithfully. Would you not say, why do the wicked prosper? And why do I suffer, me who's not a king? I would probably ask that. But here we have this example of God appearing to Solomon, even though it was not in the place he should have appeared to him. It was not in the place he should have worshipped him. It was not following good and righteous acts of solidarity inside of Israel. It was with pag- following after pagan nations, making alliances with Egypt. I mean, Egypt, remember all of that symbolizes for Israel. That is captivity. That is sin. And he made a pact with them. But God did appear to Solomon. In the midst of all of this, he appeared to Solomon and he blessed him with wisdom. He had mercy on Solomon for the sake of Solomon, for the sake of David, for the sake of the nation, and for the sake of his further plans. And that is really, really important. If God couldn't bless Solomon until he was perfect or living a perfect life, God would never have blessed Solomon. God would never have met with him because Solomon, like us, is not righteous. And this leads us into our third point, that God's ways are not our ways. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, and we'll read in verse 6. Probably going to go through this one a little quicker. It's a, it's a large chunk, chunk of scripture. And I'm just going to kind of punctuate it with, with notes throughout. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6, and we're going to read through 13. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon So God is speaking here to the wicked and the righteous. He's speaking to decent people and to wicked people. And he's giving a call to turn to him. That's the first point I'd like to make. Then in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, this does not mean that we can't grow in understanding of God's way. I think some people would read this and say, oh, he's so nebulous and ethereal, we can't even begin to comprehend. I think in some aspects that is true, but he's also designed us to try and comprehend, to still grow in our understanding of who he is, what his will is. I don't think we can completely uh, disregard the fact that we can at some level know God because he's blessed us with the ability to do so. But some people do point that out, and I just wanted to kind of give a rebuttal to it. In verse 10, it says this, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that he may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God's efforts and his purposes are assured. The wicked prospering, no matter how heinous it might seem to us, no matter how frustrated we are with that, never hinder God's plan. 
They never go against his overarching goal for mankind. They might go, over, go and hinder his plan for that individual person who he wishes would choose life but instead chooses death. But his overall plan is not hindered. Our reward is not in jeopardy because of someone else's sin or because of their being, you know, prospering for the negative things that they do. In verse 12, continuing on, it says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So God's plan, the one that he says is assured, the one that will not return empty after his work goes out, that plan is a good plan. It is a plan to prosper people. That's what it is. And he says he's bringing trees up from thorns. I think this is really good imagery. Trees in the Bible, they, they represent something established, something grounded in his truth. I think of like Psalm 1, a tree planted by the river. So if we f see a field of thistles being blessed, it might be that God sees the tree that he planted there, but we don't see it yet. It, he might see what he's transforming that into, but we don't see it yet. So maybe we need to be more careful about our frustration when we see the wicked doing what we think of as prospering. This life can be so frustrating and it can be discouraging and it can be trying because we are beings that were made for the next. We're made for the kingdom of God and we're not there yet. We're in the state of uncomfortable or discontent because this is not where we're supposed to be. It's not what we were built for. But we're desperately trying to do good and, and have good things happen to us. It's like we want the ways of the kingdom while not being in the kingdom. And that's good. We should seek that. But we don't need to be as frustrated as we often are when we see that we're not in the kingdom yet. We shouldn't expect things to work like that yet. It's coming. That is coming. But that final judgment hasn't happened yet. It has not happened yet. But in the meantime... I think we should be thankful that it hasn't happened yet and realize why it hasn't happened. Even though I'm waiting for that kingdom, I'm waiting for Christ's return, I'm waiting for this to be done, I'm waiting for the pain to be over, I'm glad it hasn't happened yet. Because if it happened every single time a person wanted to question the judgments of God, this would be done. I never would have been born. I never would have had a chance. If the judgment comes right now, where evil only receives evil and good only receives good as the kingdom should be, then think of all of those that would be cut off that God still wants to call. I would have been cut off and God had wanted to call me if he had listened to Jeremiah's petition or to ancient Israel's petition or to the disciples' notion of what happens to good people and bad people. I wouldn't have made it. And so I'm glad it's been put off for me. Hebrews 11 is our last verse. We're going to end on this one. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I just think it's so powerful. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 33, this is the Faith Hall of Fame. It goes through all these people who have done incredible things, who have undergone incredible persecution. And it says about these people in Hebrews 11:33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness was made strong, 
became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these... All the people who underwent all of that, who probably looked at their life and thought, Lord, why am I the righteous suffering? Why are the wicked prospering? It says this, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us. Something better for us that they should not be made perfect Apart from us. He heard their cry of why do the righteous suffer? And he said it's not right. And it is coming to an end. But he held it off for us. That's incredible. The wicked that remain wicked are not going to be prospering forever. That's a promise. Those who are striving for righteous living will not suffer forever. They will receive justice. They will be vindicated But thank God that Jeremiah's call to God and Israel's call to God and the disciples' concerns over how good and evil works and how suffering works. Thank God that my concerns have not influenced his decision to continue blessing who he will bless and correcting those that he will correct even when it's painful. I'm so grateful that my behavior is not always correlated to my circumstances. My life would be a lot worse if that were true. I am not righteous, and the wicked still have hope, and God's ways are better than my ways.